one of the ones who said, if you take that oath of allegiance, you're no longer an Irish man or woman. Hello and welcome to The Irish at War. I am your host, David Cummins. Today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Mary McAuliffe, Assistant Professor of Gender Studies in UCD. We are going to be talking about her new book on Margaret Skinner. And Margaret Skinner is a fascinating figure. And if you don't know anything about her, I'll give you a brief synopsis. She is a Glasgow-born maths teacher who ends up joining the Irish Citizen Army and during the Easter Rising, she is a sniper and she actually gets wounded three times. She goes on to run safe houses during the Irish War of Independence. During the Civil War, she's on the anti-treaty side as the paymaster general responsible for all of the anti-treaty IRA's finances. She later goes on to become a trade union activist and so much more. As well as that, Dr. McAuliffe and I will talk about women's role as combatants in the revolutionary period and women's history in general. But first, I want to say a quick thank you to all of my subscribers and all the people who follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and all my social media platforms. Thank you so much for the likes, retweets, follows. It really means the world to me. If you listen to this on iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and leave a little review because that really helps broaden the audience and makes this podcast more visible. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can become a patron of this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash the Irish at war. You'll find a link for it on my Twitter page. And for as little as three euro, you can sponsor me and really help this podcast develop. And lastly, we're still in lockdown due to coronavirus. So please hope you're staying safe, staying sane, keeping isolated, and hopefully we'll get over the far side of this together. But enough of all that. Let's get down to the interview with Dr. Mary McAuliffe. Okay, so Dr. Mary McAuliffe, Assistant Professor and Lecturer in Gender Studies in UCD. Thanks so much for coming on today. You're after writing this book on Margaret Skinner. So mm, yes. um, before we get stuck into that, just give us a little introduction into yourself and your field of study, please. Well, I have a PhD in history from, from Trinity. So basically my, my field of, my area of interest, I suppose, is uh, at the moment is the revolutionary period and particularly the revolutionary women of Cumannamon and the Irish Citizen Army, but also more broadly, uh, women's experiences during this, particularly during the war, 1919 to 1923, War of Independence and the Civil War. And I'm doing a, a big research project at the moment on gendered and sexual violence, but I'm also looking at militancy and how we define militancy. So it's kind of those two projects are going in, in, in parallel because the research areas or the archives I'm using uh, are, are, relative, are, are the same uh, for much of both uh, for both those areas of research. So what I mean by militancy and Margaret Skinner was very much part of that is what the women did, the, the militant women, the women of Cumannamon and Citizen Army or women who weren't in either organization but were active in helping 
the cause or the helping the IRA, particularly Michael Collins's um spy networks had a lot of women who weren't in either organization deliberately so they wouldn't be caught in many ways so looking at how their contribution was both remembered and written about in the history books and how now going back to the archives including the newly digitized archives like the pensions files in the military archives or the bureau of military history allows us to broaden our definition of what it means to be a militant do, do we, do we uh, narrowly focus in on those men who conducted the ambushes, for example, or who you know, carried arms and ammunition and set off bombs and did the assassinations and went on the run, were in flying columns? Or do we see it as um, a, more, a much broader army that was operating the logistics, the backup, uh, the intelligence networks, those who were providing the food uh, and accommodation for the guerrilla army that was on the run. And if you look at a normal army, it has all of those elements in it. So I think we have to broaden out our definition of who gets to be called a combatant or a militant. Uh, And that's my argument about these women. They were very much part of the war effort, not just in running safe houses, which is what we talk about, but also carrying arms and ammunitions to ambush sites, uh, smuggling operations, doing a lot of the propaganda work, doing a lot of the intelligence gathering, um, and being very much fundamental to the successful conduct of a guerrilla warfare in Ireland at that time. So much so that, you know, you can see in the Civil War, the National Army knew how important they were, so arrested hundreds of them uh, and put them in prison. Uh, So there's that aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is the violence then visited on both the civilian population and and women and children were a large part of that and suspected militant women by the Crown forces and suspected spies or girls who were, were, were accused of company keeping by the IRA. So gendered and sexual violence ranging from hair cropping to sexual assault to rape during this period as part of, you know, violence that happens during wars, all wars, uh, and how we need to move away from that idea that this, the Irish war was a clean war or uh, an exceptional war. It wasn't. We don't have evidence for wide-scale rape, but we have evidence for wide-scale gendered, target gendered violence against women and girls in this period. So those two are kind of operating in tandem. Uh, And in between that, you know, all sorts of other interesting things come up as well. So it's a very exciting time, well, when I wasn't locked down in a global pandemic, to be going into the archives and to be researching all of this and and, and so much new material uh, or overlooked material, material that's already there in the archives, archives we knew about. But because women's contribution wasn't seen as important or wasn't privileged in the national narratives. It was, you know, not just, it wasn't looked at. So it isn't really about rewriting the women back into history. They were already there. It's about making it visible in many ways. Yeah, that's really interesting because especially in a, in a nationalist insurgency, you can't disclude 50% of the nation. And, and I wanted to talk about this a little bit later on, in an insurgency, uh, the fighting men, they are on the run. And so the only targets are homes and safe houses, which are run by yeah. women. So the only easily found targets are where women and children are found. And so to disclude them from combat in that sense is doing 
to say the least, a disservice. Absolutely. And I mean, those arguments have been made by, you know, people like Margaret Ward, Louise Ryan, uh, and many others, including myself, that the front line, there was no front line. It wasn't like trench warfare where you have a front line. The front line came into the kitchens and the living rooms of homes, came into communities, you know, burnings of places like Balbriggan, a place like Ballylongford, my, my mother's home village in North Kerry was burned twice by the Black and Dan's. It came into houses in the middle of the night, uh, the knock on the door, the sound of the, the lorry coming up, the, you know, the bohereen and the hobnail boots and the shouts. That was war. That was the front line. And it was women and children mostly. They were stopped going to the shops for, for getting their shopping. They were stopped going in and out of churches. They were in their homes when they were raided. Uh, they were, you know, their, their businesses were burnt down. Their local communities were burnt down around their heads. And many times the reporting of it discusses the fear and terror and trauma suffered by women, children and older people, maybe men who are older and haven't gone on the run. And, and they are the ones who are fleeing into the fields in the middle of the night, if they can at all, in their night attire with their homes burning behind them. And it's a very evocative, uh, when you read those poor, uh, reports, sense of terror. And that terror isn't just one night. That terror remains uh, we all know, you know, about PTSD and how that remains in, in the body and the mind and the psyche after uh, a time of trauma. Uh, and I think we have to have a, a better understanding of how terror worked on communities and on families and on women and children in this period as well. And that's apart from those who are militant. In fact, I think the women who are militants, the Kumanaman women, were better able in the immediate sense to be able to deal with the terror because they, they saw this as their suffering for the cause of Ireland. They weren't getting shot at or killed in ambushes, but they were experiencing reprisals. Uh, and again and again, if you read in their pension files when they're making their applications, uh, they talk about how the raids they were experiencing, sometimes multiple raids in a week on their homes, but they would just then continue their work for the cause because that's where they were able to put their energies and their emotions. But you have to question then what happened afterwards when the war was over, and particularly if they were anti-treaty during the civil war and then the terror came from their erstwhile former comrades, how that impacted on them on into the 20s and 30s and for the rest of their lives. And we can see in some of the reports that it really had an emotional cost, a psychological cost, uh, and it impacted on their lives for the rest of their lives in a very negative way, in ways that we would consider now post-traumatic stress. Yeah, that's, I've read about PTSD accounts from soldiers, mostly in Afghanistan or in the Middle East, and the guys who suffer PTSD less are the guys who are always in the mire or they are able to prepare themselves and it's People who are sometimes not used to being on the front line, that um, like cooks or uh, logistics staff, people who aren't at the tip of the spear in a sense, they suffer a lot more from PTSD because they are not in the mire every day. And I suppose you can see the the correlation between the Kumanaman members and then just every other uh, civilian, uh, women, children of Ireland at the time. That's really interesting. Well, they weren't trained for war. They weren't, exactly. you know, they hadn't joined typical army. They hadn't gone through military training. And then this this 
horrendous war and it's very violent. And the more you read about it, the more you realize how violent it actually was and how the, the Crown forces, once the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries uh, enter the story, mm. that their determination to carry the war in any violent way possible uh, really impacts on the civilian population, but also uh, militant women uh, and their families because they can't find the men in many in many instances. So you can understand their frustration. It doesn't excuse what they did, but you can understand their frustration that anyone could be the enemy. Uh, so they carry out those reprisals in order to visit a reign of terror. And that was that was policy. Absolutely, yeah. That became a you know reprisals became part of official British policy in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And that links links us back to what we were saying at the start to disclude these women as not being combatants is is ludicrous, really, because like we were saying, no. those are the fixed targets which suffer the wrath of uh, the Crown forces. Yeah. And also in a guerrilla warfare, you can't conduct it without the support of the civilian population. Mm-hmm. The ones that will tell you, oh, there's a, there's a roadblock set up up the road. Go, don't go that way. Even if they do that once, that might save a flying column from being captured. And then there is the families that kept safe houses. I mean, we, we, we discussed the keeping of safe houses as if it was, you know, a minor thing. But actually, those people who ran the safe houses were putting themselves in, in absolute danger uh, of, of certainly violence of having their homes burnt down around them. But also, they could have been killed, especially if the safe house was attacked while the uh, flying columns were there. Um, so that uh, I don't think it's a dismissal, but it is, um, you know, it, it, it has become part, kind of a normalizing of, oh, well, you know, the civilian population were do- just doing this. They were doing it at risk to life and limb uh, and security. And I think we really have to go back and look at how the civilian population, as well as the organizations like Common Amon, plays such an integral and vital and central part in keeping the guerrilla warfare going. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think we might have become normalized to the idea of safe houses because we see them in the movies and you know cops have safe houses where they keep criminals but you know back yeah. in in 1919 you know having a spare house wasn't something that was just done in no, fact they were in your house with you yeah exactly and just yeah. um i was just talking about major jeffrey compton smith there today and he's he was kidnapped on the 16th and was moved around until the 30th and he was just moved from house to house as well yeah and yeah. so you know, the absolute danger that the inhabitants of that house were in for the duration of his his uh, his incarceration in their house. Like you said, if they were discovered, it was definitely jail, if not execution for them. And certainly, like, the inhabitants, the women and children would be roughed up, absolutely. 100%. Um, and there was always that threat, I think, particularly for the women, of sexual assault. Because an awful lot of the attacks come at night, they're in their night attire, the women are often separated out from the rest of the household, either within the house or taken outside. Sometimes their hair is shaved off, but, you know, and they talk about how their hair was shaved off and then suffering other indignities. And you see it's in the language, the language obscures a lot of what was going on. So you have to mine down into that because they talk about outrages all the time or they were outraged. And outrage can mean anything, and it can mean 
an attack on cattle. It can mean an attack on a house. It can also mean sexual assault on a woman, uh, depending on the context in which you're reading it. So mining down into that language gives us uh, more of an idea of what was going on. It was much more common than I think we had previously recognised. Yeah, certainly when you read through some of the accounts, it is quite difficult to ascertain what's been said. And I think that if someone was just to glance over it, because they don't explicitly say that they were sexually assaulted, they might just pass it off and say, you know, oh, they mm-hmm. got their head shaved. Even even that, you know, they don't shave men's yeah. heads. And that's the gendered violence that you're talking about, I suppose. There is an occasional young man that gets their, their hair shaved, but very rarely it's the women, uh, the majority, the, the large majority. Um, and, and again, it's like, like saying safe houses, head shaving seems to have become normalized as if it were, you know, they just come in and they shaved your hair. There's so much violence around just doing that. Uh, because your hair isn't shaved in a nice shaved head haircut so that you look like one of these pop stars today. But it is, you know, it's taken off in clumps. It's done with shears or or other um, sheep shearing implements. And oftentimes the skin is broken. They, they, you know, it is, it's violent, it's bloody. And can you imagine the young girl is probably screaming, surrounded by a gang of men. There's never less than at least five, can be up to 20 and what else are they doing? And, and, and the other indignities, that's the space that I think you can see that there is potential that other violence is happening as well. Yeah, uh, you can't even imagine it. I think there's that scene from The Wind That Shakes a Barley that kind of does a good mm-hmm. job. There's not too like it's not shown really in anything else that I can think of off the top of my head. But I think that that scene in The Wind That Shakes a Barley does it some justice Oh, it does, yeah. Except it happens during the day, whereas most exactly. of these happened at night, exactly. which I think increases the terror because you're in darkness, mm. and and oftentimes the the men were wore masks, and you know they talk about how they heard the voices, and it was only when they heard English accents that they realised it was the Crown forces or Irish accents. They knew it was the IRA, and the IRA did this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have to acknowledge that as well because they did it to girls that were taught to have friendships with or have seen stepping out with or company keeping was the term used with RIC or uh, had their heads turned by British soldiers or things like that. And um, the one one um, Irish volunteer guy in Limerick talked about the fact that they felt it was their duty to make sure respectable Irish women didn't behave like this. And it's a really, for me, that is an indicator that the, the revolution isn't now going to be as radical for women. Well, you can see many indicators of that, but perhaps the, the conservative Irish free state we got in terms of women's lives and women's inequalities isn't uh, as unexpected because a lot of the what the IRA is doing with women is about controlling, controlling women's behaviour and moral behaviour particularly. And seeing that as part of this new republic, you have to behave like a respectable Irish woman. Yeah, I suppose. And that idea of a respectable Irish woman is just, you know, Dev really takes that and runs with that. So yeah. he goes and, and we still have that today. Well, they all do. They all do. I can't, True. can't, yeah. as much as I'd like to. Dev, I mean, Cosgrave and Come the Goyle were as bad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know the 37 constitution ends with the women in the house 
uh, articles, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. True. You know, it, it's been developing. And of course, you have the church as well uh, with its social policies and its ideologies of morality and purity and femininity. It all fed into that. But it fell on fertile ground with the state as well. So, you know, we can't we can't just blame Dev. You're right. You're right. I suppose it didn't come out of nowhere, but he, he often does just get the finger pointed at him because he wrote yes. He, yeah. yeah, but that's that's fair. Yeah, you're right. Common Gale have a lot to answer for as well. We can get into that a little bit more, but okay. And I won't because it's it's. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But you're after writing a book on Margaret Skinner. Yes, yeah. Margaret Skinner, to me, is absolutely incredible. Margaret Skinner and Linda Kearns are probably my two favorite revolutionary women. <laughs> I think that they yeah. are just incredible and that their story isn't well known. They're kind of similar, I suppose, yeah. In a sense, yeah, I think so. You know, jailbreaks, snipers, yeah. it's it's incredible. <laughs> like, it's really, you know, uh, especially for yeah. for the time that they're in, it's unheard of, you know. But let's 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 talk about Margaret Skinner. Margaret, yes. Well, Margaret, um, if you want me to just introduce her to, to the people, Margaret was born uh, in... Coatbridge in uh, Scotland would be near Glasgow to an Irish immigrant father, James Skinner from near Monaghan and uh, Irish descendant mother. I think the mother was second generation Irish. So born into a very Irish immigrant or diasporic family over in Scotland. Very much the family seemed to have been very much engaged with the Gaelic League uh, and, you know, that sense of Irishness. Uh, in Coatbridge, and then they moved to Glasgow by about 1901, and seemed to have climbed up. The um, the, the father started as a, as a labourer, uh, but then he became he he injured himself and became a had a shop. So they they move up the socioeconomic scale a little bit. And Margaret and her sisters all get educated as teachers. So Margaret becomes a maths teacher, actually. Uh, and that's that's very important part of her life because, of course, she will become a teacher again after the revolution and uh, join the INTO, the National Teachers Organization, eventually becoming its president because her life as a trade union activist outside of her life as a revolutionary, although they are interconnected, is as fascinating as her time in the revolutionary period. But, of course, Glasgow is very much impacted by Irish politics from the time of the Fenians to the Land War, the Land League, Come the Gael, or, or uh, the Gaelic League are there. Uh, also, for, in Margaret's case, very much impacted by militant feminism and the militant feminism that was occurring in Britain at the time. And Glasgow was really uh, a centre for very militant uh, first wave feminism. By 1910, 1911, the Glasgow feminists were breaking windows burning down places, putting acid in letterboxes to destroy the mail, which, of course, was part of the, the uh, function of the state, uh, trying to go up the um, water supply into Glasgow, hmm. various things like that. So they were, and, and very much in Glasgow, you can see it is a mixture of working-class women, of course, with Glasgow being a hugely industrial city. So uh, Red Clyde side really plays into that. A lot of the women are influenced by socialist politics and bring that into their feminism. Margaret is one of those. And by 1912, we find Margaret as a member of the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, 
on protests outside Perth prison where some of her comrades, feminists, had been imprisoned under the Cat and Mouse Act for protesting and were on hunger strike and then were released. So we get our first mention of her actually in the unpublished diaries of a very interesting um, Scottish socialist and feminist woman, Helen Crawford. Anyway, so uh, Helen Crawford was a very interesting woman and very much involved in, uh, you know, helping, especially after the war broke out in housing campaigns, uh, because, of course, all this sort of thing was suspended for the working class. And you had landlords uh, making it, you know, being gone beanmen and upping the rental prices once the war broke out, because, of course, the Clyde side went into full war production. Uh, and there's an influx of workers, so there is much more pressure on housing and price food went up, but wages didn't. So she gets very, so this is the sort of milieu in which Margaret is uh, gaining her earlier influences. They're very much socialist and left-leaning, very much militant feminists. And by 1913, 1914, she is training Nafiana, the, the Glasgow Slua of Nafiana, with Seamus Reader, um, and in 1915, she joins the Anne Devlin branch in Glasgow of Common Amman. So you can see those three trajectories, the three great movements that Markovich mentioned, the cause of Ireland, the workers' movement and the women's movement are all coming together in those early years. Margaret would have been 19, 20, 21 at this time. Uh, and these are her influences that will stay with her for the rest of her life. Interestingly, when the war breaks out, the British set up these rifle clubs for women so that if the Germans do manage to invade, the women can also take up arms, which is a, a, an interesting uh, concept. And Margaret joins one of these writing, uh, rifle clubs, but she says she's not going to do it for the defence of England. It will be in some other cause entirely. And of course, what she means is the fight for Irish freedom. But you can see she's already on that trajectory. Uh, a lot of people, when they talked about Margaret Skinner previously, would have said the first time she comes into the Irish history books in terms of the 1916 narrative is that visit to Dublin in 1915 in December when she comes across on the boat with uh, uh, caps and wires for bomb-making equipment wrapped around her body. But she was well uh, involved before then. She had been raiding the shipyards on the Clyde side with Irish volunteers in Glasgow throughout 1915 to get munitions and bomb-making equipment for the Irish volunteers and the Irish citizen army in Dublin. So she was well known already. Uh, and Markovich, of course, knew her through the Fiona uh, and invited her to Dublin in 1915. And that's really when she meets the rest of the leadership, Connolly, McDonough, who gives her a revolver that she will use during the Rising, you know, and all the rest who are... Who are mainly she uh, meets those who are in the... A uh, circle around Liberty Hall, Citizen Army, uh, and all those like Helena Maloney, Rosie Hackett, James Connolly, uh, Michael Mallon, who will be her commandant on the Royal College of Surgeons uh, outposts. And she obviously is given some information uh, because she knows to be back in time for Easter 1916. But one of the interesting things about Margaret is she, she wants to be a soldier in the cause of Ireland. Unlike some of the other women who kind of, who, who trained to be, you know, in first aid, in dispatch carrying, although she does do that, in intelligence gathering, Margaret also is training to be a soldier and wants to be on the front line with a gun in her hands. And she is very proud of the fact that when she dresses up in her uh, male outfit, she can pass as a member of the Fianna. 
And later on, she talks about in her, her book, Doing My Bit for Ireland, that Countess Markovitch got a, a uniform made for her, made of moleskin with knee breeches and putties and all that sort of thing, which she wears when she's shooting, but which she takes off and puts on her grey dress when she's carrying dispatches. So she sees a difference interestingly, in the role of men and women in this army. When she's carrying dispatches, even if she comes across soldiers, she could engage, she doesn't, because she is not a soldier in that sense of being a soldier on the front line, although she sees that as a very important part of the war. But when she's in her uniform with her gun, uh, she's behaving as a soldier of the Republic, and that's the way she, she views herself. Right, that's really interesting that she is like a chameleon in that sense that she knows what her job is in one sense and she's willing yeah. to do whatever it takes to get that job done, whether it is, like I said, dispatch running, which is incredibly dangerous, or with gun in hand as a sniper, which of course is yeah. no cakewalk. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right in saying that she joins the Citizen Army purely because she does want to fight? Or am I, am I wrong on that one? Well, I think she joins the Citizen Army because she is a huge admirer of Markovitch, and Markovitch is in the Citizen Army. And, and her first contact in Ireland, other than Markovitch, is Nora Connolly, James Connolly's daughter, and they become best friends, and they will remain best friends for the rest of their lives and activists together. And I suppose her closest ideals are represented by the the crowd in Liberty Hall, the Citizen Army and the ITGW and the Irish Women's Workers Union because of her socialism and her militant feminism, uh, even though she is actually officially a member of Coming Amon in the Anne Devlin branch in Glasgow. But when she comes to Dublin, she is with Markovich and then she joins the Citizen Army to take part in the Rising and she's She's basically seconded to Michael Mallon and the Stevens Green uh, Brigade, who eventually end up fighting the Rising from the Royal College of Surgeons. And she's very happy to do that because she is a huge admirer of James Connolly. She also knows he sees women's place in the revolution as equal to that as men. In the same way, Helena Maloney talked about the fact that Connolly gave them all revolvers when they were going off to City Hall, men and women. And, uh, you know, they were told to use them. So I suppose there is that element of the citizen army that appealed more to her sense of being a full and equal participant. And she talks about that in Doing My Bit for Ireland. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so let's talk about what she actually did during the rising then. Mm -hmm. Well, on the first day on Easter Monday, she's sent off to Stevens Green to scout and see if there's any soldiers there. And she's told to remain there if nothing's happening. And she does because there is nobody around. And she talks about seeing the citizen army marching towards Stevens Green through the trees. And, and, and her line at the end of that chapter is the revolution had begun. And you can feel the pride in that. Uh, and the, f the first two days of the 1916 Rising, she's basically a dispatch carrier for Mallon, he, one of his chief dispatch carriers, among several women who are, including women like Chris Caffrey and a few others, who are carrying dispatches. But she's the one who goes back and forth to the GPO. And apparently she was at, she says, at the GPO when she saw Pierce read the proclamation uh, at the foot of Nelson's Pillar that Monday afternoon, and then comes back and sees 
the attack by Markovich and Partridge, Tom Partridge, or William Partridge, sorry, on a battalion of British soldiers and talks about the fact that they did shoot some of them dead. She doesn't mention any shooting dead of Constable Lahif, of course, which is one of the controversies. And she talks about them entrenching themselves in Stevens Green and then of the fact that, of course, the countermanding order meant they had fewer men and women in the battalion outpost and that they couldn't take this Shelburne Hotel, which will be important subsequently, or or some of the other taller buildings, but the fact that they did take the Royal College of Surgeons, even though they were entrenching themselves in Stevens Green and the women were setting up in the summer house. Then early on on Monday morning, she talks about the the rat-tat-tatting of the machine guns from the roof of the Shelburne, where the British had then put position themselves and how they had to flee to the Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, And she was very insistent that the British were targeting the women in their Red Cross uniforms deliberately. She talks about that quite a bit as a sort of a a moral judgment on the British soldiers. She also judged them to be very bad shots because Mm -hmm. nobody was actually hit. And she had to deliver the messages, say, to the uh, the advance party on Leeson Street Bridge to come back into the College of Surgeons. And she talks about the bullets leaping up off the street onto the spokes of her bike and how she was, you know, the fact that she was a very fast bicyclist saved her life uh, and took some more dispatches to uh, the GPO to inform them that they had retreated from the green to the College of Surgeons. Uh, of course, by Wednesday, things had heated up and dispatch carrying was much, much more dangerous and that had stopped. So this is when she changes into her uh, moleskin uniform and goes up onto the, the, the roof of the College of Surgeons and starts operating as a sniper. And she says, more than once I saw a man I aimed at fall. So she's very proud of her abilities and her, her shooting abilities in particular. Uh, and she sees this as war. She's very dispassionate about the impact of war. People die. You know, you, you want to kill the enemy, to defeat the enemy. And this is what war is. And being a mathematician, she also has a good head for uh, planning. So she came to Mallon with a plan because they were being pinned down in the College of Surgeons by the machine guns from the Shelburne. They couldn't, found it difficult to get out and they were running out of food even though the College of Surgeons itself was impregnable, like she said, the bullets were like peas off the wall. But she wanted to lead herself and one or two others to rush towards the Shelburne around the the side where she would then throw a bomb with an eight-second fuse into the Shelburne and set it on fire and the smoke would obscure the line of fire uh, to the College of Surgeons. Now, an eight-second fuse seems to me like a very dangerous mission Mm. And Malin said, no, he couldn't have a woman doing that. And it's interesting here, she uses the proclamation to say to him, the proclamation, uh, the, the constitution of the republic, she calls it, has said we are on an equality with the men. And that's going to be a mantra for her entire life after that. The proclamation becomes a touchstone for her. And she will go to it again and again and again when women's rights are being impeded either by legislation like the marriage bar or by societal concerns or, you know, anything like that. She talks about how the proclamation of independence promised equality for women and equality with the men. And Mallon agreed with her on that, but he said the, the Shelburne attack was too dangerous, but he agreed to let her lead an attack on another sniper who was up towards Harcourt Street near the university church 
uh, was also sniping on on the College of Surgeons. And this she does on um, by 2 a.m. on Thursday morning, herself and William Partridge and a young fella from the College or the Irish Citizen Army called Freddie Ryan, who's only 17, uh, and one or two others start sneaking towards Harcourt Street from the College of Surgeons. And when they get to a doorway, uh, William Partridge tries to batter in the door and that makes his gun go off because, of course, their guns weren't great anyway. Mm. And the flash, of course, attracts the attention of the sniper who shoots at them, kills Freddie Ryan and wounds Margaret three times. She's very seriously wounded. And she talks about, well, I, I suppose she was told about it, how she was dragged back bleeding heavily to the College of Surgeons by Hartridge and the other two Irish Citizen Army men. And it is in the big lecture theatre in the College of Surgeons in the corner where the coming on and Irish Citizen Army women had set up a first aid station that she's actually operated on under the supervision of Madeleine French Mullen by the women without anaesthetic. Wow. So you can imagine, I think they give her some alcohol to drink. But she talks about, you know, a madame... Markovic held her hand the entire time as she was being operated on. And they they effectively save her life. Uh, I think one bullet is lodged near her spine, one in her shoulder, or two near her shoulders and one, one near her spine. And she didn't have too much uh, lasting legacies from that. She couldn't lift one arm very high, but other than that, she was fine. They, and it just shows the great training that these first aid women had been given by Dr. Kathleen Lynn. And she spends the rest of the rising, obviously, lying in bed, wounded. Really, she describes the atmosphere in the College of Surgeons on the Friday and on into the Saturday when they begin to hear, like they're hearing the bombardment of the city. They can see the fires of O'Connell Street and all the keys and up into Henry Street. They hear that the GPO has been evacuated they hear that there has been a surrender, though they don't quite believe it. They're also hearing other rumours that the country has risen, and they're really hopeful about that, that the Germans are coming and sailing up the Liffey to come to their aid, all that sort of thing. So you can imagine the, the furball atmosphere that was in the College of Surgeons with rumour and counter-rumour and that they're near close to surrender, that they're close to, you know, that there's an army marching from North County Dublin or from me coming in to rescue them. And it must have been, it must have been in some atmosphere to be in there, especially if you were lying wounded. And being a woman like Margaret who wanted to be in thick of the things, it must have been so frustrating. But then she talks on the Saturday morning about this pale, slim young woman coming with a British Army officer. And of course, that was Elizabeth O'Farrell coming with the notice of surrender from Pierce. And then the, the garrison saying, no, we have to be told by our commander. And that's James Connolly. So she goes back and brings back the notice of surrender from Connolly. And then all of them saying goodbye to each other and Malin and Markovich telling the garrison that they have to do their duties as soldiers and surrender. And actually all of the garrison, men and women, in the Royal College of Surgeons are marched off to Richmond Barracks except one, and that's Margaret, because, of course, she's wounded. So she's taken off to Vincent's uh, hospital across the green. It was there at that time. And she talks about it being, you know, the last time she saw Michael Mallon, because he will be executed in a matter of days. And uh, she hears, you know, as she's lying in hospital of the trial of Markovich, and she wonders how everybody is getting on. She's visited by Nora Connolly, 
who tells her of her last meeting with James Connolly and James actually asks after Margaret. That's how well they knew each other. And uh, she's in hospital for quite a few months because she gets pneumonia. She is taken out, arrested and taken out, but she's so sick they bring her back. And eventually she just gets up, pretends to be a lost Scottish person to the Dublin Castle authorities. They don't really know who she is and gets uh, permission to go back to Glasgow. And so she leaves Dublin then despondent, but hopeful that this is not the end, but the end of a beginning and the beginning of something else. Um, And that's really where doing my bit ends with her back in Glasgow, thinking of the future, thinking what more she can do uh, for the cause. Wow. That's uh, quite a way to end it. It's only the beginning of her life. She's only in her early 20s then, so she lives until 71. So a long, 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 long life after that. But that was such an exciting time. For everyone, I think I think the Easter Rising is very different from the War of Independence because it's very contained. It's kind of heroic in yeah. its in its performance, you know. So it's it's almost like theatrical in its performance of revolution because it's very uh, situated on stages, on on stage like spaces in in the different outposts, and it's just the week. And the heroism is defined, and and then the shooting of the signatories is you know, the defining moment of it and they become the Patriot dead. And after that, though, of course, things like the War of Independence are much more messy and much more diffuse and much more, um, you know, complexities about who's who's good and who's bad, who's a Patriot and who's not, and, and the violence that happens then. In 1916, you have, you know, the looters and things like that, but the violence is is also more contained as well even though Dublin is destroyed, the city centre is destroyed. Yeah, like you said, like we said at the start, the lines were very clearly drawn. We had the yeah. British and then we had the, you know, the rebels and that's the yeah. two. And then, there, you know, there were a lot of people caught in the crossfire, a lot of civilians. But for yeah. the most part, it was very much so. We're on this side, they're on that side. We know what we're doing. It's short, it's sharp. It, there is a, a fatalistic hero aspect to it and like you said it's in prominent buildings around the city and we're taking it back and we're going to change the world and yeah all that and and in doing my bit for ireland which is really a propaganda piece and i mean margaret writes it while she's on the republican women's tour in america in 1917 with Nora connolly and hannah she skeffington and min ryan and several of the other republican women uh, who are very effective in getting the irish american population behind the fight for Irish independence. I mean, their contribution to that is enormous. It was so much so that they're seen as really dangerous by the British authorities, who, of course, at the same time, are trying to persuade America to enter the war on the side of Britain or the Allies. So doing my bit is part of that propaganda tour. So aspects of doing my bit, you have to take with a pinch of salt. Like she says, Markovich took the College of Surgeons on the Easter Monday single-handedly. And we know from other sources she didn't. You know, there was it was, it was taken by a group of them, including Markovich, by subterfuge. In fact, there was only one person in there because it was Easter Monday and it was the pure, poor janitor mm. who got fooled into letting them in. So it isn't that isn't as heroic as it seems. And she really has a big... Uh, hero worship of Markovich, so much so that all of, you know, Markovich, from from my perspective, deservedly has her place in history, but can be perhaps 
um, made too much of as the as the hero as the un varnished heroine or hero of of the 1916 rising and uh, none of her faults and failings are on display and margaret is a bit like that with markovich markovich is her mentor in many ways and and she obviously hero worships her um and will continue to do so until markovich's death so you have to take ask the aspects of it that make it a proper a very effective propaganda piece it's it's reviewed in all the american newspapers very positively and the, the polemic nature of it, obviously, it's a very one-sided view. But if you take all that and you just see then that this is a young Scottish woman committed to a cause of Ireland, writing about her experience and her emotion and her feelings and her attitude, uh, and, you know, she mightn't get all the, the detail right, the fact right, but it is her perspective and her point of view, and this is how she saw it. And that makes it a very valid contribution to the... Um, uh, eyewitness accounts of the rising. I've been tweeting it out this week um, to, you know, do great uh, interest to people day by day what Margaret is saying about her days in the College of Surgeons. So Margaret joins, uh, Margaret gets out of Glasgow, managed to come back to Ireland, and then she goes on the propaganda tour with uh, all those other women, Sheehy Scavington, Min Ryan, uh, and, all, and all those others on that propaganda tour does she manage to get back to Ireland during the War of Independence? Yes, she's back in Ireland by March 1919. Oh. And she joins, she's living in Fairview, and she will live in Fairview and Clontarf for the rest of her life. So she remains in Ireland from 1919 until she dies. Ireland is her home uh, from that period on, and she commits herself to the cause of Ireland. She joins the Fairview coming on at this stage. Interestingly, she doesn't go back to the citizen army, but I think the citizen army isn't as effective a force as it had been. Well, Connolly is gone and he was their leader. He was their emblem, their symbol. So she joins the Cumannamon in Fairview. She'll eventually be invited onto the central executive of Cumannamon and become their director of training around the time of the truce. So that's how effective she was. Funnily enough, her part, her participation in the War of Independence is different from the uh, 1916 Rising. She doesn't take up a gun. Mm. And uh, she is more, she behaves more in the way you expect of coming among women. But she still sees herself as a militant and a combatant. Uh, but she is, uh, you know, running intelligence. She's running training with many of the Cumannamon branches. She's running a safe house, doing a huge amount of fundraising and propaganda work arms running and transporting and hiding and all that. She also at this stage has formed a, re- a lifelong relationship with Nora O'Keefe, who she met, I think, in New York. I can't find that they would have met anywhere except in New York because Nora had immigrated there. And Nora also comes back to Dublin. And Nora was from Tipperary, a very well-known um, Fenian and then Irish volunteer family in Tipperary. Her brothers were all in the IRA, her sisters in Cumannamon. The family home eventually burned down around their heads during the War of Independence. And Nora is very much a propagandist. She was a stenographer uh, and a writer and becomes an effective propagandist both during the War of Independence for, obviously, the Republican side and during the Civil War for the anti-treaty side. And both of them end up in jail for a year, almost a year, during the war, uh, the Civil War. And both of them are safe house running, gun running, propaganda for fundraising. Nora is actually the one who identifies the body of Sean Tracy, 
when he shot dead in Dublin. In fact, they were distant relations because, of course, Tracy was from Tipperary. Uh, and Tracy would have used the O'Keefe household in Glenock in Tipperary as a safe house. And when he shot dead, he had visited Nora, who was working in the Liberty Hall as a secretary to Thomas Johnson, um, the leader of the Labour Party then, a couple of days before he was shot. And so she's the one who's sent to identify him in what is now St. Brickens Military Hospital. And she takes a lock of his hair and, and one of his rings. And that's a part, that's one of the aspects of um, of this revolutionary period for the women as well that I want to talk about in that book on our, our research project on violence is the trauma of the identification and burial of men who were executed or shot dead, often left to the women, preparing the bodies for burial, making sure the religious and republican rites are carried out over graves, protesting outside prisons, mass prayer ins, because of course Cumanaman has been declared illegal or prescribed, but they are making sure if they're executed or if they're ambushed and shot, that they get proper burial rites and then graveside orations and shots over the graves, even though oftentimes those graveyards are surrounded by black and tan men. But the, the, the trauma of many of them having to collect and prepare the bodies of young men, men they possibly knew, their brothers, their cousins, next door neighbours, maybe men they were in love with. And that trauma... That must have been incredible. And there is a um, O'Keefe family archive that talks about uh, Nora going to to do that and the trauma of that um, and seeing somebody she knew so well dead on a slab. So both of them are very active during the War of Independence. And then when the Civil War breaks out, Margaret takes a vehemently anti-treaty side in the Cumanamon meeting to decide on their stance on the treaty she is one of the ones who said, if you take that oath of allegiance, you're no longer an Irishman or woman. It was the oath of allegiance that was the breaker for her. Not the border so much, although that was bad too, but the oath of allegiance, just they couldn't countenance it. And she was very sorry to see women she had been um, comrades with, like Jenny Wise Power, Min Ryan, Alice Stopford Green, various other members of Cumanaman leave and resign their positions and form Cumann the Searsha because of that split in Cumann Amman. Uh, and Margaret then ends up being arrested in December 1923, f- charged with possession of a revolver. And Nora's arrested as well for, for propaganda work. It's interesting that what you said with her role in the, during the War of Independence, it's not on the front lines like it was in the 19, uh, during the no. Easter Rising, but she's still doing a very important job. And then during the Civil War, because she so vehemently believes in the anti-treaty side, you know, she, she's at the four courts. She, she is, yeah. Um, she's actually a bit more active again in the Civil War before yeah. she's arrested, and particularly during the Battle of Dublin, because she's, um, she's very much trust, trusted by the leaders. She'd known Liam Lynch, for example. She'd met him in New York when she was there during the Republican Women's Tour, and she and Nora Connolly had helped him secrete some documents that he had in his possessions and visited him when he was arrested and imprisoned in the New York infamous Tombs prison. They spoke to him in Irish during their visit so nobody could understand what they were saying. You know, she was well known to the leadership and trusted by many of them. And of course, Mark, it's also 
So she is given the responsibility of setting up the minimum in the Tara Hall near the four courts to make sure that um, they are there to back up four courts garrison. One stage meets a group coming among women from Glasgow, whom she knew, who had arrived with a whole load of arms and ammunition for the anti-treaty side, and she'd commandeered an ambulance from somewhere um, and loaded up the ambulance, those arms and ammunitions that had come, and uh, took them off to the Cahalbrua and uh, the others in the Hammond Hotel, where they were coming under attack. And, of course, she retreats to there once the four courts is destroyed. Once the Battle of Dublin is over and, and the uh, war, I suppose the Civil War, moves mostly out into the countryside, particularly into the Munster region, she remains in Dublin because she is appointed Quartermaster General of the IRA when Liam um, Lynch is arrested. And she reports to Austin Stack as Minister for Finance in the shadow anti-treaty Republican government. And she's dealing with huge, huge amounts of money. She's effectively the one who's bankrolling the anti-treaty IRA throughout the country in as much as she can. And she's using the anti-treaty coming on to take money and information and intelligence throughout the country. So she's a very central player in the organization of the anti-treaty IRA during that latter half of the Civil War before she gets arrested. In, 19, in December 1923. And that, I think, was was not as well known as her participation in 1916. And again, it goes back to seeing 1916 as kind of theatrical because of her changing of clothes and being a sniper. She's the sniper girl on Stephen's Green. What she's doing in the Civil War is, in many ways, a much more senior level role, but it's, it's about organizational abilities. It isn't as theatrical as, you know, dressing up in skin uniform and taking a gun up onto the roof of the college surgeons and firing. She's actually filling out forms, writing notes and making sure money gets here, there and everywhere. And while that's central, it's not as exciting, I suppose, in many ways. And so it isn't as well known and doesn't make it into the history books in the same way. Well, now it does in the book I wrote about her. (laughs) (laughs) But like, that just proves, well... That just goes to show that it's it's incredible that more isn't known about her or she's not as well known. Because how many times throughout history do you hear about soldiers just leaving an army or you know revolting because their pay isn't regular enough? So to pay your soldiers is is so important. And for Margaret to have that job just shows how important she was to the anti-treaty side. And, yet, and how trusted she was, absolutely, you know, yeah. because she had all the information. I went to the Austin Stack papers and there are a couple of mentions of her there, including one note that said, pay, pay the bearer, pay Margaret Skinner or whoever she sends as the bearer of this note, £800. And £800 then was a huge amount of money. Yeah. And that, I'm sure, was one of many notes that came from Austin Stack about the dispersal of money around the countryside. Because, of course, they not only had they to feed themselves, but they had to, to try and source arms, either by stealing or buying them. And there was all sorts of uh, need for money and, and basically keep the show on the road. Uh, funnily enough, when Margaret was arrested, the person who took over her position as quartermaster was her friend Nora Connolly. Until she was arrested. And then, of course, um, the Civil War eventually comes to an end. But Nora O'Keefe, Margaret's partner, is also very much part of that. She goes to Kilkenny 
and starts running a short-lived but very effective propaganda, anti-treated propaganda uh, newspaper, Kuanumlei, which she runs uh, somewhere near Herlis. And uh, again, she's arrested for that as well. What you said there with Nora Keefe, that bell rang when you mentioned that she was the one who identified Sean Tracy. And what you said there about the, the trauma and violence that women have to suffer in that aspect of identifying the dead bodies, not just identifying dead bodies, but especially of loved ones or if they're relatives or people that they might have known. I mean, look at, look at any book on war and you'll always hear these stories about soldiers being so sad that they buried their friends or you know, yeah. their friends died. And so to, to once again, disclude women as combatants from the war is, it just doesn't make any sense. Oh yeah, yeah, it doesn't. It only gives you half the story. Yeah, 100%. And then I suppose that kind of goes on and, and that scene with the military pensions and Margaret's fiasco that she has to go through because she's not considered a combatant. No, when when the first tranche of military um, legislation, military pension legislation was enacted, it, it excluded coming among particularly, but it also ex- served to exclude anyone who was anti-treaty. So it was really for those who had fought in the War of Independence and were in the National Army or on the anti-treaty side. And it was expected, obviously, that women would apply. But of course, uh, one, two women did apply. One of them was Bridget Lyons Thornton, who was pro-treaty, but actually had been co-opted into the National Army as a medical officer. So in in theory, she actually had a valid application because even though she was a woman, she was in the National Army. She also had very good connections in the Free State through her her uncle, McGuinness, McGuinness, and her, uh, you know, a conduit to Cosgrave, who was determined that no anti-treaty people would get the military pension. But so Lyons Thornton does get it. When Margaret applies, Margaret applies not as a member of Coming Amon, but as a member of the Irish Citizen Army, which is interesting. Because the Irish Citizen Army were included in the groups that could apply. So she applies as a member of the Irish Citizen Army, which she was, and continued to be, I suppose, in ways she never did resign from it. I don't think being a member of the Irish Citizen Army was being either signed to or resigned from, you just were, and she'd fought with them in 1916. And she talked about her wounds. She talked about her 16 service, her War of Independence service. But you can see, if you go into that military application she makes, the correspondence between those considering the application, and it says, this lady is a very prominent irregular. And so they're they're determined from the very beginning that she will not get the pension. So they come up with the idea that the pension was meant for soldiers who can who can only be considered in the masculine sense. So soldiers can only be men. And so therefore, Margaret, despite being a member of the Irish Citizen Army, although they don't address that, is a woman, so she can't be um, granted a pension. Now, she doesn't let it lie. She writes letters back and forth, and they keep replying with that. And I find, uh, thanks to help from Dr. John Borganova in, in UCC, and it's great to have colleagues who are so good to find little things that they know you'd like to send on. Uh, he was looking at another file where a woman who had asked Margaret, who knew Margaret and asked Margaret to be her, referen- her referee, uh, had said that Margaret had applied for the pension to see what they'd say. So she was actually testing them. I think she was always one who pushed boundaries. She, she probably suspected that they wouldn't give her the pension. 
but she was going to make them refuse her, a woman who had been shot three times in the Easter Rising, who was a patriot, who was known to be a patriot for Ireland and the cause of Irish freedom, and they refused her. Now, she did get the pension uh, in the 1930s. She got the wounds gratuity, and she got pension when it was expanded to include all those who had fought treaty and anti-treaty. But she doesn't get it till about 1937, 38. So what, 20 years almost after the end of her active service, she eventually does get the pension. And like all the women, she got crazy, despite being uh, an active militant. It just goes to show, like we said at the start, that the denigration of women had started long before Dev was in power with coming to Gale. Yeah. Seeing that they're all getting paid the lowest the lowest uh, rates, despite oh yeah, because they weren't considered militants like that. That's not a new um, a new idea. I think their comrades during the civil war acknowledged the vital contribution of women. You can see it from even people like Dan Breen said, "Without the women." They, they couldn't have kept the fight going as long as they did. And other IRA commandants um, and, and leaders talk about that. But really, once the pre-state is set up and the position of women becomes much more contested and much more domesticated, that militancy becomes made more invisible. Because, well, I think a large part of it had to do with the anti-treaty side. The majority of coming among women took and so they're seen as unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries, as furies. These are words Cosgrave used. Uh, women, bloodied women. So Hegarty is particularly vicious about the anti-treaty women and common law women in general. Uh, and so militancy in a woman is seen not as a positive thing as it was seen during the war, but as a very negative thing, a defeminizing thing. So in order to refeminize women, you have to deny that that part of their contribution to and the memory of it. And so it gets made more and more invisible when it's finally written out of the history books altogether or never makes into them in the first place. And that has real life impact in, as well in terms of policies. So rarely do women get anything higher than a D. In fact, I don't know of any woman who got, a couple of them got Ds, maybe they're the main leadership, but the majority of them get E. Uh, and it'll be interesting when they digitize and put online the applications that were turned down, how many women were and for, for, for what reason. Yeah, that is going to be interesting because, you know, what are the reasons for declining them? Well, they didn't see them as, as soldiers. Yeah. They didn't see their contribution as as vital, as important, as central. You know, keeping a safe house was seen not seen as as that important. When actually, actually, is, yeah, which is crazy because that's how they operated for the whole yes. war of independence. Yeah, I know, but that was seen very much as part as part of their domestic duties anyway. Uh, yeah. So how can you make that a military, yeah. a military thing? Yeah, sure. Sure, if you're already in the house, you might as well take in a couple yeah, sure, of these. Yes, cook the dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's annoying. So, or especially in the build-up to the Easter Rising and then throughout the War of Independence, do you think there was a choice made by women between feminism and nationalism, seeing that the suffragette movement was kind of um, with, well, 
just predated uh, the East Horizon, but then you can see it up through the First World War and, and then the War of Independence. So do you think that they had a choice between feminism and nationalism, or do you think that both of them went hand in hand together? Because, as we said, in the proclamation of 1916, it's Irish men and Irish women, and both are being treated equally. Or supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it, it isn't that black and white, actually. Um, there, It's very contested, uh, particularly before 1916, and especially around the time, once feminism becomes militant. I mean, you can take about Indian Heron as well, who saw themselves as a separatist, nationalist, feminist organisation, but their nationalism seemed to come first. Although they are, all of them are also all feminists, whereas the Irish Women's Franchise League, very much a feminist, militant feminist organisation, and they are very angry, for example, around the time of the founding of Common in 1914, when the first manifesto of Common talks about fundraising for a body of men to fight for Ireland, and they think that that is really a, a backward step for political women and militant women and women fighting for women's rights because it's saying, you know, women are the handmaidens of the men or as, um, what was it, Hanishi Skeffingdon called them, uh, human collection boxes for the men. So there was uh, that whole idea for some of the feminist women that it was suffrage first above all else. Uh, and they saw, and so there is those arguments between them. But I think a lot of those arguments point to the maturity of, of the political positions of all of these women, whether they're choosing nationalism first or suffrage first. Although almost all of the leadership are both suffrage women, they are campaigning for the rights of women, and many of them are also uh, in favour of Irish freedom uh, and any republic. Somebody like Markovich, for example, would have been both suffrage campaigner from the mid-1890s, as had Kathleen Lynn, whereas somebody like Hannah Shee Skeffington had committed most of her life for the fight for women's rights, but also when she goes on the propaganda tour in 1917-18, is looking for justice for her murdered husband, yes, Francis Shee Skeffington, but also takes a letter into Woodrow Wilson, President of America at the time, from Cumann to talk about the rights of small nations, because, of course, the Versailles negotiations are going to start uh, then, and, and Ireland's very much counting on this whole idea that small nations should have their freedoms. So you can see those tensions and those conflicts and some choices that women make of, of making one more their focus than the other, but they're not. it's not as black and white as making a choice one or the other. It's, you know, a combination, but which combination are you, are you more focused on Irish freedom? A lot of the nationalist women wanted to gain the vote from women from an Irish parliament, not a British parliament. And they saw that as their focus, whereas a lot of the feminist women didn't matter where they got the right to vote for women and women's rights generally. They just wanted them to happen. Uh, and that was where the, the grey areas were. But certainly after the 1916 rising, you can see less and less in that. Although even in the um, general election of 1918, when uh, the feminist women want way more women candidates to run, some of them, like Meg Connery, accused the common among women uh, of chasing after the Sinn Féin, the male Sinn Féin candidates and not supporting women's rights in the way that they should. And, and so those tensions do remain on into 1918, but really, they're, they're, the War of Independence 
once once the right to vote is granted, albeit a limited right to vote, and the promise then of much more expanded suffrage in a new Irish Republic, if it came into being, those tends um, become less obvious and less uh, open, and and people who were campaigning for either women's rights now, be like Meg Connery or Hannah, become more concerned about the impact of war on women and children, on the rights of small nations to defend themselves, on other issues like Meg Connery goes around and, and does reporting for the American Commission on Conditions in Ireland. And so they're talking about a war on women, for example. That's where they put their feminism and their feminist activism. And so there's sort of a, a trajectory where, yes, there is tension and there is conflict. And that will continue actually even into 1922 and the treaty election where the common among women are demanding that the uh, franchise be extended to all women over the age of 21 in common with men. But the government don't want to do that because they're convinced that most young women would be anti-treaty and it might impact on the vote. And uh, there is a delegation. There's still suffrage campaigning going on, even then, trying to get that expanded franchise for women. After the setting up of the Irish Free State, I think a lot of the feminist women realise both anti-treaty and and pro-treaty women who had been more active in feminist activism or more active in active in nationalism and republicanism realise that they're in a totally new environment where women's rights are really under threat and most of them unite together to fight against the state and the church denying women's rights, particularly the the rights they felt had been guaranteed by the proclamation and the 22 constitution. So, yeah, you know, it's a very interesting period between 1900 and 19 in the 1920s for feminism and nationalism. It's tense, their arguments, but a lot of them campaign together on various things and they have their arguments. But in the end, I think when the free state is set up, the state becomes the focus that they can come together on to campaign against, particularly its attitude to women. That's interesting that while some of them were more inclined towards suffrage and some were nationalistic, the way they still all came together mm. um, against the, the common enemy. And uh, and that kind of leads into the next question. Like when you have the prominence of Countess Markovich, Hannah Sheehy Scavington, Dr. Kathleen Lane, you know, the chief medical officer for the Irish Citizen Army, Jenny Weiss Power, Margaret Skinner, the list goes on. You know, how is it then that with these women that were so prominent during the revolutionary period, how is it then that they are forgotten about but in in a broader sense how is it that women are then like delegated to second class citizens in the free state well i suppose in many ways you you have to see that the state that came into being wasn't unlike the state that had pre-existed it was quite a conservative state it's a very catholic state part of the catholic church was particularly enormous it did control the education system and the healthcare system it had its uh faith hold it's had it had its hold on, on ideas of morality and purity and respectability you also have to see ireland as a post-colonial state so we were defining what it meant to be irish and in those definitions of being you know what it meant to be an irish woman and an irish man and the definition of an irish woman was domestic in the in the home the hearth the angel of the heart the the keeper of the flame of the family uh, marriage and motherhood was 
seem to be the aim of, or should be the aim of every young girl in the state, reproducing the next generation of workers and patriots for the state. And then, of course, continuing on that history of institutionalization and a history of ostracization of those we deem deviant, including women, like, uh, you know, Magdalene Laundries had preceded the free state, but they certainly flourished in it uh, and, and grew uh, from 1922 onwards. So that combination of church and state uh, positioned women very much in the secondary position. The Civil War has a lot to play into it as well, and women get unfairly blamed for the Civil War in many ways uh, because of the of Amman being so vehemently anti-treated. You see 600 or more imprisoned during the Civil War of, of women, of Amman women. Uh, and the treatment of women during that period. And it was seen that that women needed to be domesticated and and feminized again and become proper Irish women, proper Irish respectable women who would, you know, only have children within marriage, who would represent Ireland on the world stage, who would, you know, be this perfect post-colonial Irish woman defined by both a very conservative church and a very conservative state. So I argue that what Ireland effectively becomes is a democratic theocracy for people in that period. Uh, and when you think about it, the percentage of people who were institutionalized in things like mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, industrial schools, psychiatric institutions, and other types of institutions for that, for all sorts of reasons of deviancy or what was considered defects it's a huge percentage of our population, you know, uh, and I see that as part of our post-colonial angst about who and what we were uh, and, the, you know, defining the muscular boys at the crossroads and the, and the Colleen's, the dancing Colleen's and all that sort of thing. That is those, those definitions uh, play, have real life impacts. So from the very beginning, you can see the state, the church, for example, is passing moral judgment on women and how women should behave. And the state is passing legislative judgment on where and how women should behave. So the Juries Act, the Conditions of Employment Act, the Marriage Bar, Civil Service Amendment Acts, women had to give up their jobs on being married. They couldn't take certain civil service exams. They weren't supposed to work outside the home once they were married. They were supposed to behave in certain ways. Um, That all flowers into being... So by the time de Valera writes the Constitution in 1937, his women in the home articles are a reflection of a state, not a new ideology he was bringing into being. It reflected the state that existed for women. And you have resistance. You have real resistance. But because many of the political women had been anti-treaty, uh, if they joined Fianna Fáil and were elected, like Kathleen Brewer, for example, they didn't take their seat so while you have several women in the Dáil in the early 1920s, only one woman actually takes her seat, and that's Margaret uh, Driscoll O'Collins O'Driscoll, who is coming the Gael and votes according to party lines. In the Senate, you have women like Jenny Wise Power and Kathleen Clark uh, and Eileen Costello, who resist the anti-women legislation that is brought forward, but they can only have a certain amount of impact, and they combine with Common Amon, with the various other women's organizations that exist. Like, it, all of this doesn't happen without resistance. But unfortunately, women are sidelined. They're not that important in terms of politics. 
And a lot of the women who were disenchanted with politics after the Civil War go into more areas like social care, like Kathleen Lynn uh, setting up St. Alton Hospital with Madeleine French Mullen. But Margaret continues, for example, um, there are a lot of letters from her in the Hanashi, uh, in the She Skeffington collection talking about the Irish Free State and, and really being unhappy about it and resisting it and campaigns to resist that. Once Margaret joins the INTO when she gets her teaching job in 1927, 28, one of her big plans was to try and overturn the marriage bar once it comes into play in, into being. And eventually it does happen two years after she was president. She was president in 56 and, and it's overturned in 58. She campaigns for the rights of women teachers to have parity of payment with male teachers uh, and unmarried male teachers to have parity of payment with married male teachers. She campaigns to have women's educational position made better. She is very conscious throughout her life as a trade union activist on into the free state and then the republic of the inequalities that women face. Uh, She campaigns with the Irish Housewives Association on the price of food and all other things in the 1940s when the emergency ended, and but there was still high price for food, for better housing, for better education. She goes on strike with the teachers in 1946 for eight months. These women continue to campaign. They're very conscious of the unequal position of women in society. And they're very much aware that this has to be an ongoing process. So they don't let things lie, but they are a minority in a poor country where most people are struggling to make ends meet, where there's huge immigration, where conservatism is the order of the day, where the Catholic Church, as we know, had its, had its foot on, on the neck of the population and uh, basically set the tone in terms of education, morality, who was in or out, who should or shouldn't be institutionalized. And they were up against these big players, and a very conservative state that agreed with the church in many in many ways. But they kept going and they kept campaigning. Uh, and I end the book I, uh, on Margaret on the fact that she uh, sees the beginning of second wave feminism before she dies. In fact, after she retired as a teacher and, and retired from the INTO, she was appointed to the Women's Advisory Committee of the ICTU, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, first Women's Advisory Committee, which still exists today within ICTU, and she uh, was working with younger, a new generation of women who will become the second wave feminists. So she sees that beginning of second wave feminists and is very much in agree- agreement about it. There's a letter from her to Hannah Shee Skeffington in 1937 that says, we need a live women's movement. And she believed that all her life because she saw what was happening to women's rights, that kind of backlash that happened. The, the, the promise and the possibility of a radical change in women's position in society during that revolutionary period, which was very fleeting, unfortunately, and never came to fruition. She believed in that all her life, and a lot of them did. They never let go of it, and they kept campaigning for it. And I think they're the ones who then passed on the baton to the second-wave feminists who carried it on and who who gained more uh, equalities for women. With the earlier part of what you were saying, it's almost as if Cumann Gale and the Catholic Church were like, okay, ladies, you've had your fun playing soldiers now. 
give us the gun and <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. you know back into the back kitchen into the back into the yeah. kitchen you know back into the yeah. home yeah back to you know your traditional women's roles but it's yeah i, I knew that like hannah she's getting and she was a um outspoken opponent of the 1937 constitution but I didn't know as much about um, Margaret or, or everybody else. And that's... Oh, she was, yeah, yeah. And so many of them were, uh, but they, they were a minority. Yeah. yeah, they were. Well, there was a big campaign against it and uh, letters in the newspaper and meetings with Dev and all that sort of thing. But um, the Irish Women's Workers' Union was against it, the Common Amman, the University Women's University Graduates Association and many, many more groups. But... Um, the population passed it in the vote, and, and that was it. Um, so, you know, they were they were operating in a very conservative atmosphere then. It must have been very diff- difficult for them when you think about how much the, the period between, say, tw- 1912 and 1922 had been a period of, uh, yes, violence and trauma, but also a period of possibility. And then when they're resisting the 37 Constitution or they're campaigning to overturn the marriage bar, it must have seemed so prosaic and and like trying to hold back waves and waves and waves of conservatism and traditionalism and ideas around women in the home that were coming at them but they kept going yeah like you were saying it's there's so much promise there you know like we were saying that the theatrical nature of the 1916 rise and the, the proclamation where we're all going to be equal and free you know to a couple of years later you're just not, you know, you're, know. you're just yeah. Yeah. like yeah. women. There's so much happened in that period. And I think the Civil War is is a huge trauma for yeah. everybody in all sorts of ways, as any Civil War is. Yeah, and especially... I mean, the War of Independence was traumatic enough, but the Civil War, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're still thinking, how on earth are we going to commemorate the Civil War? Because 100 years later, can we even do that? Yes, yeah. population. Yeah, like it's bad enough now trying to, like we we saw in January with the the RIC commemorations and. Oh, that seems like a year ago. Now. Oh my god! Yeah, I was I was jokingly saying everything before Corona virus should be called BC. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, but like that, you know, the RIC, the commemoration, and that the Ferrari that caused. But how are they going to tackle the the, the civil war? Civil war, and yeah. I suppose. Back then, well, it'll be a mark of our maturity, I think, and our our ideas of history, and then transforming narratives of history that that lots of us are putting out there now. That maybe we will be able to make some sense of it. I think we need to. Like it, it will be a hundred years. I think for our own growth as a as a as a people and as a, a nation, we need to actually do that. But uh, we need to do it sensitively and ethically, and without any sensationalism. Or hopefully any big rows. Hmm. Although the RIC thing doesn't give me great <laughs> hope. No. Yes. No, not at all. Do you think Irish women like Mark Fitch or Sheehy Scampton, once that period, the revolutionary period, is kind of over and done with, do you think that they're, because they are anti-treaty, that they are kind of not forgotten about or just kind of not mentioned anymore or almost airbrushed out of history? I think it's a mixture of both the fact that they were anti-treaty and the fact that they were women. Because, of course, some of the pro-treaty women are also forgotten about. I mean, Jenny Wise was an extraordinary woman. 
Absolutely extraordinary. And actually, myself and Margaret Ward and Sinead McCool were supposed to participate on a panel about Jenny Wise Power as part of the St. Patrick's Festival, which, of course, Corona put paid to. And I think she's very deserving of, of maybe a new biography or certainly her place in history. An extraordinary woman who started her activism as a teenager with the Ladies' Land League and, and is a senator in the Irish uh, Free State Senate between 22 and 37 and it is an extraordinary, in, in every organization, every group and organization, and we had feminists or nationalists going, Jenny Wise Power was part of it, she was big in Sinn Féin, coming to Mon, of course, she's a founder member, all of that sort of thing. Huge, huge figure. Uh, and yet, you won't see her mentioned in the same breath as, as you know, Cosgrave, or I know like, she wasn't, she, she was a senator. She was a politician and I would argue as important in her own way as many of the male politicians. So her, you know, so it, it isn't only because of the civil war. It's also because of the attitude to women and women's roles in society and in history. And I mean, history is gendered. There's no denying that. Archives are gendered. In many ways, women's papers don't make it into the archives in the same way as men's do because they're not seen as as important. I can't tell you the number of families who've said to me, oh, we burnt Anne so-and-so's papers when she died because we didn't think anyone would be interested in that. And Anne so-and-so had been a big player in coming on or in the suffrage organizations, et cetera, et cetera. Because women aren't seen as political or public figures. Uh, and so we are stymied by the lack of sources, although there's more and more there now. And I mean, military archives have been a boon. And also going back and looking at the existing archives, there are actually more papers there on or about women or from women than one would uh, recognize because we're now using them not to study men, but to study the women themselves. So UCD, for example, have a great number of the political women's papers. And so that, I suppose, forgetting of women or not even considering them important enough to be in the history books in the first place comes from both a gendered and an ideological perspective. You know, people, they weren't seen as important and in many ways what they did was seen as, as marginal too. So you mentioned them, the common among women did great things. They were great, they're lovely. They ran safe houses. That's what you get. But you have to expand on that story. So in the last, I suppose, since, since Margaret Ward's vital foundational book of um, Uncommon Amon, Unmanageable Revolutionaries. That was in the 1980s, so it's, it's what now, 40 years. The last 40 years, there's been a huge and growing research into and publication on women in this period. But I mean, if you expand that out, we really have to do women in all periods of Irish history, from the earliest times through the medieval on into the modern because women were there all of those times as well and were making their contributions as well. So in a broader sense, women's history is, is vital and you have organisations like the Women's History Association of Ireland campaigning about that for so many years since the 90s and its foundation. And I think it's having an impact. You see modules on women's history or gender history in history departments. I mean, you can't have a history department without that now. You see publications. Publishers really want books on women now because people are interested because for them it's new histories. Maybe for us it isn't. And, and that's one thing that does irk me a little bit 
when people go, particularly in newspaper articles, how come we never knew about these women? And I think, well, I knew about them. Mm. Um, it's just, look, they're out there and there are loads of publications. I suppose, it, you know, it just takes time for it to filter through into the public, into popular histories, into um, people's stories that they tell themselves about Irish history and Irish um, national narratives. But I must say, going around the country, whenever I'll be able to do that again, giving talks during this decade of centenaries, and mostly I would talk about either either gender, for the most part, or class histories, or a combination of both. People are always coming up with their memories that they're, you know, about their grandmother or great grandmother, and we have these stories, and we have these archives in the attic or in the wardrobe. Um, and many of them are now making commitments to give them into their local archives, their county archives or national archives. And they want to know more. And I get emails all the time from people looking for information on on their grandmothers or great grandmothers and what they did. And there's real demand for that out there. And I think that is because people want to know f- the full story, not just, you know, the idea of, the, the great patriot dead who fought and died for Ireland who were all male and there was that part of the narrative but the complicated story of ordinary men and women particularly the women because a lot about the ordinary men is known and what they did and what their lives were like and how they contributed to Irish history and what legacies did they leave so it, it's been a, it's been an extraordinary time for women's history, and I'm very happy to be and delighted to be part of this, you know, contribution uh, in whatever way I can to um, making sure that continues, uh, making sure you know my research gets out there and promoting the research of other people who are writing about women and women's lives in whatever year, and not just the revolutionary era. And I think it's important for us. As, as people interested in our national narratives, in our stories, in our histories, to know all of them, not just one part. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it does make sense to me to eradicate or just if there was an accident on the side of the road and you had 10 people looking at it, five men and five women, you know, you get different stories. <laughs> you get different stories, but you like, you, but you don't. That was similar, but yeah. But you don't just go. All right, well, I'm not going to listen to any of you because you're women. You know, yeah. but that's what happens in history so much. Um, yeah. So it doesn't. Yeah. It. It like. I think. Need to stop that. Yeah. Listen to the women as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I think if they're there and they're witness to something, why aren't their stories been told or or been kept? You know, but well, I think for I think it's better now. I think they are yeah. now. I think people are recognizing the importance um, of women's papers, and they're depositing more in archives. Um, there are also, you know, more publications coming out. The publishing houses are are, are looking to publish on women's and genders histories. Uh, it's the same of say the histories of sexualities. You know. There's a huge demand for um, queer histories and LGBT histories. Any minor, any histories of those who are outside of the mainstream political and male um, narratives are are now really interesting and, and looked at as important and necessary. And I think we need to keep doing that. And, and that's not to say we don't do the other narratives as well. I think we have to try and do them all 
which can be difficult, but mm. there's enough of us out there now to actually contribute to, to these histories and, and bring them together and, and construct a fuller, more nuanced, complicated narratives. Because there is never only one. one. Yeah, for sure. And I think for a long time, we had those arguments that there were two conflicting ones, especially during the, uh, you know, the, the revisionist history wars and all that sort of thing. Now, I think we, we do recognize the complexities in all of their glory, I think. I, I think complexities is, makes it much more interesting. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, and life, inclusive. Yeah, life is not black and white. You know, it's, no, it's everything no. else. And, and, yeah. and it's good that it's not just tokenism as well. You know, no, we don't want that. And yeah. women and stir. No, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. And so mentioning that, like on sexual orientation, do you think that, well, we have like Dr. Kathleen Lane and Madeleine French Mullen were, yeah. you know. Um, a couple. Yeah, a couple. They were like, yeah. I think, like, Was you, it you Roy read Foster often that they're lifelong they're friends. Yeah. Roy Foster said in Vivid Faces that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I think, their, their relationship had all the aspects of a, of a marriage. So, yeah, yeah, they were very much accepted as a couple by their compatriots, by their friends and, yeah. and social grouping. Uh, I think Elizabeth O'Farrell and Julia Grennan can also be looked at in that way. Yeah. Margaret Skinner, as I discovered in the research, and Nora O'Keefe. Helena Maloney definitely was bisexual, if not lesbian, but definitely, like, there is the story that she and Sean Connolly had a relationship before he was shot dead in City Hall, but she does spend most of her life, uh, later life, with Evelyn O'Brien. Um, one of the um, Brennans, uh, the Brennans, yeah, Kathleen Brennan, definitely had relationships with women. Uh, and there's a few others. I, I have about seven or eight couples and a couple of other women who are, are definitely involved in relationships with women. And same with the men, you know, you have Roger Casement, you have, there, there are queer histories of the rising and the revolutionary period to be written as well. Yeah, definitely. And like, I don't think that that's, I don't think that their sexual orientation was one of the reasons why they were swept under a rug, you know, as, as we mentioned before. No, no certainly not women, because was... I, don't, I don't think they, people even saw it. Yeah. Because it was so invisible. Mm -hmm. Women's sexuality was invisible anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it, I think up to the point, maybe in the 80s and 90s, when people were more aware because gay rights and LGBT rights had really come to the fore then, and there definitely was tension around talking about, say, Kathleen Lynn uh, and Madeleine French Mullen as a, as a couple, and there was a refusal on the part of some historians to do that. Uh, that's gone now. And again, there's huge interest in this. I, I was... Um, when I started talking about this, and I've given a few talks about these and uh, some on radio as well, people are really interested. They want to know more. There isn't that resistance. Of course, you get the odd, odd oddballs. Oh, no Irish patriots could be lesbian or gay. You can't yeah. have that. Yeah. They were all straight, and that was it. But most people are like, this is fascinating. This is a new aspect of history. Of course, it's always been there, but bringing it to the fore and... I did a, a talk there the other day. I'm doing some talks on, on online with Brian Crowley, who, who's the archivist in Kilmainham, and he does queer tours of Kilmainham occasionally. 
And he was talking about that, like there, in, in Kilmainham Jail, there's a whole queer history, like around the Dublin Castle scandal in, in the 1880s. Uh, he talks about Kathleen Lynn and Madeleine French-Mullen because they were there after the rising. Uh, and so there's a whole aspect of any place and any space you can talk about that can be gendered or that can have a queer history, you know. So you, we have to be open to all those histories because they've always existed. They're just being ignored. Yeah for various reasons. Maybe people weren't interested, but also people were uncomfortable with them and they didn't want to talk about them and they didn't want that part of society to be discussed because they regarded it as deviant. Yeah. I so, think, but now people are much more open. Yeah, I think it's it's amazing that, that it is there. I think it's brilliant that nowadays, like you said, it's becoming so much more popular and people are interested in it. And I certainly think that like, you know, any teenager who is gay and like is trying to hide it that like, you know, they can, you can find see you're people. not alone. It was there in yeah, history. Like, you know, it's there and, I, I and there's these for, yeah. powerhouses of Irish history, like these yes. you know, monumental figures yeah. and they were too. And that's grand. Like, you know, and I think that that's yeah. more I, I think of a reason it's to talk the same about way, You know, uh, when I step outside of being a historian, but also being a woman, uh, for me, it was very important to have gender history or to understand women's history, to see my histories there and trajectories. Like, how can I be uh, able to work outside the home and, you know, have a job in a university and all that sort of thing uh, and understand the trajectory that brought me as, as an Irish woman in 21st century Ireland to the position I'm in today, looking back at all the fights for Irish freedom and you know repealing the marriage bar and all that sort of equality for pay and equal pay and equal rights and all that sort of thing. It's similarly for, for minorities, for, for travellers, for LGBT minorities, for in, in the next generation when they've grown up for the, for the new Irish mm. um, to understand where their histories were, both back in the countries of origin of maybe their parents or grandparents, and, and how that impacted on them, on their position as Irish in Ireland when they are grown. So those histories are necessary because society is complex. Uh, lives are complex. We have to understand the complexities of our histories. Uh, and in many ways, um, women like Kathleen Lynn, I think their, their private concerns or their private feelings could have been part of leading to them to radical activism because they were making radical choices personally and politically. They have to have impacted and interconnected. Um, and not for everybody. Most, the majority of the uh, activist women were heterosexual. But a lot of them too made, made what would be considered, um, you know, radical decisions in that they decided who they'd marry themselves and them to marry. You know, you see a lot of coming among women marrying IRA men. They can be from different class backgrounds, which was quite unusual at the time in Ireland. A lot of the time you married within your own class and it was people your parents approved of, particularly for girls. They, they weren't seen as having a choice in whom they married. So there's that happening as well. So there's a history of marriage through the revolutionary period that could be looked at in many ways. Um, and I think we, we have so much more. People think, oh, my God, how many more books on the revolutionary period could you have? Dozens, hundreds, different aspects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, that's, that is one thing that does annoy me in a sense that the revolutionary period gets the majority of the limelight, um, which, you know, for me, I just think, like, you know, there's thousands of years of 
Irish history oh, that could be talked yes, about. Yeah. But even like you were saying, like the 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 gay history of the the Easter Rising, and for some reason that's ringing a bell. I think someone is working on that. I think I don't know. I might. I, I don't know. But like it is ringing a bell. But like, but even that, like you have so much there to write about, and I think that that's brilliant yeah. as well. Um, but yeah. yeah, like there's just like you said, there's just different angles and different aspects. No, oh, yeah. Well, you see, life is complicated. We have lots of complicated angles to take on any period of any uh, of Irish history. Yeah. Do you think history in Ireland is in a good place right now? Well, I think, you know, despite all of its uh, furore, the RIC, um, scan, whatever, the RIC argument we had in January, aeon ago, it seems now, indicated that people are really engaged with Irish history. And I think uh, I think people are very much engaged with, we're a very small island, you know, with a small population. We might think of ourselves as the centre of the world, but we're not really. We, we do punch above our weight, and, uh, but we are very much a people, uh, I think the people on this island like to talk about history a lot. Or maybe I'm in a bubble where history is talked about a lot, but certainly they like to talk a bit about me with it with me. If you say to a taxi driver, I'm a historian, you'll suddenly get a lecture from the taxi driver about what he thinks of some aspect of history. And you just have to sit there and take it hmm. because yeah. you're in his cab. But I think history is in a good place. I think the fact that the uh, history will be core to the junior search has is very, very important. And I'm so glad that that actually was the outcome of that campaign. Uh, I think the decade of centenaries has engaged a whole generation, re-engaged an older generation and engaged a younger generation. I think the digitization of so many of our archives and their use in schools, you probably know more than I would about that, has helped you know students really engage in history in the schools in a real way that perhaps when I was going through school, you know, you just were learning dates and things like that. I became fascinated with history despite how history was taught. I did have a really good secondary school history teacher, though, for fifth and sixth year. Same. But, uh, you know, I think we are um, in a good place in terms of history. When I look at how history is used and taught in the United Kingdom, where there is a very imperialist attitude to history, which I think in many ways fed into Brexit and feeds into a lot of the very negative narratives on race over there, I think, you know, not not saying that there isn't room for improvement, there always is. And particularly you have a cohort who do this, you know, kind of using the new nationalism to be racist. The idea that, oh, if we let people in who are not Irish, we're destroying our national heritage and all that, they're using history in a very negative way. I have no truck with that and no time for that whatsoever. But other than that, I think history is in a very good place in this country at the moment. Uh, we have a lot of documentaries, a lot of publications, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, you know, I think it's good. And I hope it continues that way and gets even better. Yeah, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. And I, I think I think the government should put more money into it too, particularly yeah, well, digitizing more and more records. Well, definitely, definitely. Okay, so Dr. Mary McAuliffe, thank you so much for talking with me today. Tell everybody about your book on Margaret Skinner and where they can get it. Okay, uh, the Margaret Skinner book is from UCD Press. So if you go online to UCD Press, you can order it from there or in all good bookshops, as they say.
Brilliant. Dr. Okay. Mary Collins. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. Thank you so much to Dr. Mary McAuliffe. I found that was a fascinating conversation and I've long wanted to talk to her about Margaret Skinner and and the women's role and women's role. Hmm. And there you have it, folks. Thank you so much to Dr. Mary McAuliffe for coming and talking to me. Her work on Margaret Skinner, as well as other female revolutionaries during the Irish revolutionary period is fascinating. If you can, please do buy that book. It is a page turner. Thanks again to all of my supporters and followers on Instagram, Twitter, and all my social media platforms. Really, it means the world to me that you like my posts and you share them with yours. If you are listening to this on iTunes, please do rate, review, and subscribe as well. It really, really helps get this podcast a lot more visible to a lot more people. And remember, you can become a patron of this account for as little as three euro. That's the price of a cup of tea. So if you think that this is your cup of tea, please consider heading on over to Patreon forward slash The Irish at War and becoming a patron today. Hope you're all keeping safe, keeping sane, and until next time, good luck.